Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Good morning. Welcome to the bunker and the substantial meals edition of Start Your Week. I'm Andrew Harrison. Before we start, firstly, our Christmas online market is open for one week only at podmarket.co.uk for all your politically obsessed presence needs. We've got mugs, t-shirts, face coverings, and even baby grows from The Bunker, plus our sister podcast, Oh God, What Now?, and even some vintage Romaniac stuff too. UK delivery guaranteed before Christmas. That's podmarket.co.uk. And secondly, we're doing one last live Zoom of the year with all the regulars on Thursday, the 17th of December, and it's exclusive to Patreon backers. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out how to sign up. Up bright and early with me to explain the week ahead is Alex Andreo. Good morning, Alex. How are you today? Good morning, Andrew. I'm fine. I'm glad to hear it. So the big issue this week is the parliamentary vote on the new tiers system as the country emerges from lockdown. It was heavily trailed over the weekend as massive rebellion on the horizon. Mark Darcy, BBC parliamentary correspondent, says, are we about to see the first real parliamentary crisis of the pandemic? Are we going to party like it's 2019 all over again, log jams <laughs> in Parliament? What do you think is going to happen? Um, I think they're going to uh, come up with a, a, a compromise that will minimise the rebellion. Uh, ultimately, though, they don't need their own back, backbench votes because the signal from Labour is that they will support the tier policy so, uh, so they can get it through with Labour votes. Not that that's ideal for them, but they can still get it through. And I think ultimately uh, conservative backbenchers know that. I think if Labour moved to maybe abstaining or somehow not supporting the government on the deal, I think you would see a much smaller rebellion. In many senses, it is the Labour votes that are allowing uh, conservative backbenchers the luxury of uh, rebelling. Yeah, and it is the most rebellious that we've seen conservative MPs. We're told that between 70 and 100 are expected uh, to rebel. But it's not really much of a good look for the supposedly all-powerful massive majority. Johnson is to be relying on Labour votes on a thing that, you know, isn't as ideological as, for instance, Brexit, which we'll be talking about a little bit later. I don't know. It's it's sort of getting there, though, isn't it? The new figures have been released from the weekly study that tests people at random and cases dropped by a third the week after lockdown was introduced. Uh, so because we're, you know, because those figures are a week behind, as it were, the figures we have now are the figures when we would start expecting the lockdown to start to have an effect. And in, indeed, it, it had a dramatic effect. Cases dropped by a third. So we're to be treated this week to the spectacle of various uh, conservative backbenchers arguing simultaneously that lo- lockdowns don't work and that the last lockdown has worked so well that there's no need to uh, keep going with any kind of restriction, (laughs) which I always find 
quite interesting. If the government is going to be relying on Labour votes to get this through, if there's going to be a possibly symbolic, possibly real rebellion, what does what does this mean for Johnson's strategy on on coronavirus? Because you know the week all the weekend messaging was we're nearly there, and you have this terrible image of Steve McQueen and the barbed wire as he has to rely on these kind of tub thumping metaphors for, for everything. But the government is looking increasingly weak, and 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 it has. Uh, a reputation for you turning at at, at at every turn. Do you think that we're, we're about to see another one? We're about to see further watering down of the tears? Yeah, I think we will see a little bit of it. But, I mean, ultimately, this argument is going to be there the whole time and until a vaccine is widely um, circulated. Uh, it's, it's quite weak now, I think, um, because... The anti-lockdown message, what it, the main thing it had going for it throughout the last few months was this, uh, this notion that you can't keep locking down indefinitely and hurting the economy. You have to sort of counterweight with the damage you're causing. Now, this argument becomes, it shrinks significantly on an intellectual level when you know you have three, four vaccines coming down the pipeline, one of which will be, um, uh, you know, relatively efficacious. So what does then the argument become? You can't keep locking down a couple of times over the next six months in order to save thousands of lives. That doesn't quite have the same ring to it, does it? But it's it's going to keep going on and on because ultimately MPs are um, have local a local agenda. So for MPs who have low incidence of the disease in their constituency, but they've been lumped into uh, you know wider county um, that has. Uh, higher incidence of the disease in its urban centres, maybe, they they will keep complaining and they will keep pressing the government for concessions. The problem is that for any kind of measures to be effective, they have to be simple and they have to be clear. So the more the government is pushed into salami slicing the country into smaller and smaller chunks, into thinner and thinner slices, the more we head towards a sort of postcode system where, you know, if I'm here, I can meet only four people, but if I go across the road, I can meet six, the more we will end up with an unclear system that is very, very difficult to follow, even by people who do want to follow the rules. Um, so, so I think that's going to be the overall effect. The, this constant pressure coming from the back benches, it's going to f- force a, a, a system that is more and more and more localized and less and less effective by virtue of being less clear. I'm reminded of uh, Ian Duncan Smith over the summer asking why there can't be a borough by borough uh, system in London, which made me think, have you ever been to London where the tube goes through multiple boroughs before you've even, yeah. uh, you know, travelled a couple of miles? I mean, I mean, also, can... who lives in the same borough that they work in? Um, I would imagine it's a small minority of people. So, I mean, the focus has been very much on the hospitality sector, hence substantial meals. Uh, it is the most threatened from the lockdown going into Christmas when it would have been making most of its money, the, the huge question marks. State media org and the Telegraph is talking about grants to pubs and restaurants. Do you think that's going to be enough to buy off the rebels or is it going to be the localism that they require? Look, on this one, I think they do have a case to argue, actually. 
Um, I mm. think this is this is the strongest part of the anti-lockdown argument because the pub and restaurant uh, sector has taken uh, exceptional measures to um, to limit the uh, infection, and uh, you know I've been to places that. Uh, are extremely careful and very responsible, clearly. And I've been to places that are quite lackadaisical. And I think the argument is, if I've invested time and money to make my business COVID safe, why are you closing me down? Because someone else hasn't done the same. So I think there is a, a, there is a, a really good argument to be made for in more enforcement of businesses who refuse to be COVID safe in order to allow businesses who have made the investment and are taking it seriously to operate. You know, the perennial argument, which I have some sympathy for, is how can you close pubs, which at the moment, you know, you go in, they take your name and number, you scan a QR code, um, you disinfect your hands, and then you go and sit at a table, and that's the last time you sort of move around and mix with anyone, but allow supermarkets to be open, which are increasingly lax about making people wear face coverings and wear hand uh, you know, and use hand sanitizer, about making people use the one-way uh, flow system, about, you know, people not taking things off the shelves and put them, putting them back. So they're, they're much riskier places in many ways. Yeah, it's, I think it's also going to be, this week is going to be the week of people working out how long you can spin out a substantial meal. You know, how cold do, how cold do the chips and the burger have to get before you can no longer say, I'm still eating that. But you I, know what I mean? But I don't think you can, I think you can order, uh, I think once you've had a substantial meal, you can still order booze. That's right, isn't it? No. No? no or it is it only it's like, with the, the meal itself? The minute you finish your substantial meal, you've got to drink up and get out. And, and I mean, I can eat a fairly substantial meal, but I'm not sure I could spin it out for a three-hour sitting in the pub oh, session. There's going to be a market for extremely dry chicken, and <laughs> you know, which takes a lot of chewing, and possibly Ian Dunst's Dorito lasagna, which I, I would imagine would take a couple of hours. Yeah, it could take a lot of shift in that one. Yes, that's the very definition <laughs> of substantial. I, I did like the uh, the brewer somewhere who uh, has brewed a batch of beer called Substantial Meal. Yes, yes. So, so I'm having a substantial meal. Very, very me funny, out. very funny. It's also available in cans. I saw the other day. Um, look, ultimately, so we know there's a horizon to this. We know that there's, there's an end date. It's going to be sometime in the middle of next year. So th- what we need to do is ask ourselves, are we willing to be careful now that we know it's for a short period of time in order to protect people? Or are we going to be, no, I want my Christmas 2020 and I want it now? Because that's ultimately the difference. The difference is is a philosophical one on behalf of the public. Either you try to make it a challenge to have as little contact with people as you can during lockdown periods, or you make it a challenge to have as much contact as you can get away with under the rules. Those are two philosophically different positions, and I would advocate the former very strongly. 
we only touched on it a minute ago, but what, what would Labour want to extract from the government in order to back Johnson in his hour of need? I don't know. It's hard, isn't it? Because of the Brexit deal possibly coming along. And, and, and that, I think, complicates it because, you know, to uh, rely on the opposition's votes for one vote may be seen as careless. <laughs> <laughs> to rely on the opposition votes on two such major issues, so central to government policy, possibly twice in one week, uh, put, yeah. puts you in sort of grand coalition territory. And, you know, and, and that has, that has uh, implications for both Labour and the Conservatives. So maybe abstain on both, maybe support the measures and abstain on the EU deal. Something like that will be the combination, I, I, I suspect. Have we got any more clarity on how Labour will vote on the EU deal yet? Because it was a really febrile weekend and a lot of kind of uh, very high temperature arguments about why abstention is the right way to go forward or an absolute abdication of uh, of any kind of responsibility, why uh, voting for it would be utterly shameful or the responsible thing to do, why I'm the same about voting against it. It's like nobody seems to be able to get their story straight. Well, but, but that's, that's effectively because, you know, the left loves to beat itself up and argue with itself. So, And they haven't had an opportunity to do that for a few months. So they're going for it with real gusto. But, I mean, ultimately, um, you know, this deal is not going to be remembered as the Keir Starmer deal. It's going to be remembered as a Conservative deal. It's going to be remembered as a Boris Johnson Brexit. Whatever happens this week, I suspect will evaporate quite quickly from people's memory in the next couple of months. So I don't think it's that important, although I do think it's tricky and there are no good options. My sense is that they will end up either uh, voting against or abstaining. Again, my sense from, from Keir Starmer on past form is that he will end up abstaining because he always opts for the for the thing that... Uh, effectively ties him down least for the future we're going to be talking about this in detail no doubt uh, on all the podcasts mm. as this runs mm. down to the end of transition but what, what is the latest on the, the the eu deal dragging on i mean barnier barnier is in london and that means something yes it does mean something so my uh, brussels contacts were telling me just before the weekend that Barney still had his travel arrangements intact, but was not planning to come to London unless he received a phone call signalling a significant concession on level playing field. And so the fact that he is in London at all means there has been a significant concession on level playing field. Believe it or not, I genuinely think they are stuck on fishing. Um, because uh, because that's the issue in which Barney, I think, has a number of trenchant member state governments objecting to anything that gives away too much. To be honest, for a relatively good reason, I don't know why this issue has become so emblematic, but that's what it is. You know, it has become a, a, a sort of brilliant cipher for the whole Brexit thing in that British fishermen want to catch all the fish in British waters, 
but they also want to be able to freely sell them into Europe. If you look at the figures, you know, the fishing industry is the sector that should want a deal with no tariffs and no quotas more than any other. I mean, we sell almost 90% of our cod into the EU, almost 100% of herring into the EU, 80% of mackerel, 80% of all shellfish, and over 50% of salmon. So, you know, being able to catch our own fish, as the, the phrase goes, is completely meaningless unless you're able to uh, to take commercial advantage of it. And that is the crux of the whole of Brexit. The UK has not still decided and must now decide what level of access it wants into the European market. Different levels of access come with different restrictions. It really is as simple as that. You cannot keep arguing for a level of access without the corresponding level of restrictions. This has been the case right from the start. You know, we're seeing the new farming policy unveiled today. That's going to be quite interesting. You know, farmers are quite suspicious of it, and they're right to be suspicious, because leaving the common agricultural policy has been clear since the very, very start, certainly since Theresa May's red lines. So what is the only conceivable uh, reason it hasn't been announced until now? And that, to me, must mean that they're trying to minimize scrutiny on it. So they're going to have a massive rebellion from farmers on their hands, I suspect, in the next few days. And that may shift uh, what happens in the in the European uh, negotiations. Barnier, as I understand, is, is trying to convince the governments of, you know, France, Portugal, Spain, the the fishing nations of Europe, Ireland, etc., uh, to accept a, a sort of a, a deal where they catch, they return some of the fish they catch to the UK so that the UK can then sell them back to Europe. I mean, it's ridiculous. <laughs> It's ridiculous. It's so complicated. It's such a tiny fraction of the economy. And, uh, you know, at, I know, and at the same time, you know, we're not thinking about services. We're not doing anything on financial, um, uh, uh, financial institution equivalents, which is a huge sector of the economy. So, you know, who knows what's going on there? Apparently, MEPs, if they are to scrutinise whatever kind of deal comes out, they're going to need a draft agreement by this Wednesday. Yeah, but uh, as, I've, as I've explained many, many times, one must think of the EU and the UK as two freely contracting parties. Effectively, they can agree anything, provided they agree it in the form of an agreement. So they, you know, they could, as long as it's within their competence, they could they could draft a new treaty that includes the provision that time stops for the next three months. And as a matter of fact, the EU has a history of doing that. They've done that a couple of times in the, in the past. So basically, they've drafted a treaty that says, you know, time pauses as far as we're concerned until we're able to translate this and ratify it, etc., one last thing before we disappear. The Internal Market Bill is going to be back uh, and we'll resume parliamentary ping pong from the Lords of the Commons and back again. Mm. 
Is, is that likely to affect discussions on the deal, or is it just part of the, the dismal backdrop? Of course it is, and it already has significantly, because, you know, it's an, it's a, it was a huge own goal, and it was a, a real naked display of bad faith on, on the part of the UK. So, of course, it is significant. But, having said that, Johnson's new chief of staff, Dan Rosenfield, I have heard from a couple of sources that he's very, very against um, breaking international law, as any sane person would be. So maybe that changes the calculus a little bit. Um, Maybe they won't push quite so hard to reintroduce those sections into the Internal Market Bill. My God, ending on an optimistic note, that's very off-brand. We can't do that. It's not what we're here for. All right. Yeah, it's all good. (laughs) I did laugh at the beginning when you were saying these are the the issues that are going to be big this week. And it's like, have you not been paying attention for the last four years? The issue by Wednesday, we're going to be being attacked by alien lobsters or something. That's going to be the big issue. This something week. to look forward to there. That, yeah, don't uh, don't set like put, don't put light in on that in there, Alex. The listeners don't like to hear it. <laughs> well, the question is, though, are they going to be British lobsters? <laughs> Keep an eye out, and we'll we'll uh, we'll keep you informed on that one. So let's start your week with Alexandreo. Alex, thanks for getting up early to discuss the the usual swirling horrors. You're grudgingly welcome. <laughs> Remember, our live Zoom with Oh God, What Now is on Thursday, the seventeenth of December, at eight o'clock. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast to support us and get free access. And there is a virtual grotto of quality Christmas gifts from all of our podcasts at PodMarket.co.uk. Delivery guaranteed before Christmas unlike certain EU deals I could mention. Thanks for listening and we'll be back tomorrow. The Bunker Daily was produced and presented by Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. And audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs> <laughs>